Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now uh, with us is James Sweeney of Credit Suisse in our New York studios. And John Farrow and I know that we've read very carefully, James Sweeney, over the years, always counseling against deflation fears. You updated, you published yesterday on this arch fear that's out there. Tell us what you wrote. Well, I mean, the Fed has gotten some criticism recently for claiming that the declines in inflation that we've seen lately are due to temporary factors that will go away. And we looked at it closely, and we found that it's due to temporary factors that will go away. Does the Fed look at temporary factors, which is a 2.24% 10-year yield and a two-year yield that's going to drop under two at some point, or do they look at the, the Sweeney inflation rate or the Powell inflation rate? Which are they a slave to right now? I think they're definitely a slave to the bond market and the the incoming growth data and the fears about what's going to happen next more than what's happening on inflation. I mean, this is lagging. This is statistical. This is not particularly interesting. We're not we're not kind of plunging towards deflation or anything like that. There are many inflation measures, and they are broadly okay. sideways and dull. But there is a growth issue. Right but there's now. a there's a growth issue, and yeah. you know, folks, let's get this straight. There's two there's two mandates in the United States, one in some other countries, including the EU. Jeffrey Frankel of Harvard did a great thing for NBER a number of years ago, folding in the growth dynamic. Does Chairman Powell have a Jeffrey Frankel like growth dynamic in his mix? Well, I, I think the growth dynamic is that we have weakening and pretty weak u.s manufacturing growth right now we have a shock right in the heart of that with the trade dispute so you know i, I think the ism uh figure for for june coming up in a couple of weeks will be a very important data point because i it's, it's possible that that will plunge from an already low level and we've been getting weak pmis uh, that's the sort of thing that drives markets, drives yields lower, and and te- and the Fed even tend to react to that, even in the absence of of broader weakness in the economy. And right now, when you look at labor market indicators, there are not signs of broader weakness in the economy. We we have not seen jobless claims rise. We have not really seen payrolls growth slow. We certainly haven't seen unemployment rise. So uh, so where we are right now, if, if you think of really the three variables as being the labor market, short-term manufacturing and investment momentum, uh, and inflation, you know, inflation basically ignore temporary factors. Uh, manufacturing, very bad, big risks given the trade war. And the labor market, fine, but bears watching. And, and that, that, I think, is why the Fed is in wait-and-see mode right now. Um, But -hmm. there's some things there that can go in different directions rather quickly. You can have a deal on the trade war or you can have disappointment on the labor side. See, John, how he's doing that. He's hedging it as an economist. We're going in different directions. That's what economists do, Tom. James, let's talk about the experience of Europe in the last 12 months. They've managed to get by okay, and largely because the weakness in manufacturing hasn't spread to services. The experience of Europe, is that something we can expect in the United States? Well, this is really typically the case. Uh, We have manufacturing slumps all the time around the world where labor markets are not affected very much. I mean, you'll recall 2015-16, we had a large manufacturing slump globally, also 2012 and 13. In neither of those cases did you see the U.S. labor market uh, materially weaken. So, 
yeah, I mean, Europe has been hit by the trade concerns, but it's also had some troubles last year in the chemical sector. It had some troubles in the auto sector, which persist to this day and are being uh, partly driven by, by fears of, of potential tariffs. Uh, but, you know, the labor market in Europe also bears watching. It, as you said, you just got a little bit of a blip on, uh, on German unemployment. But you know, when you start to see labor data broadly start to slow, then you, you, you have a different threshold of, of, of worry. I mean, I, I look at where the market is priced for Fed cuts, and I, and I don't see the market pricing for a high probability of one or two cuts. I see it pricing for a lower but rising probability of a lot more cuts than that um, in the case that labor market weakness really falls off. Uh, do you think what it's priced for right now is misplaced, James? What do you think of market pricing at the moment? No, I think the market is is priced for uh, for the risks of moving towards a U.S. recession and getting many uh, many cuts from the Fed, um, and and so I, I think what we what we've done recently is we've moved away from this idea of insurance cuts and really the conversation in the market is are you going to see the labor data start to break down in the U.S. so that the Fed needs to cut a hundred basis points, two hundred basis points, big moves. So, you know, my conversations with investors have really been about, you know, that outlier scenario right. rather rather than, you know, an insurance cut or two, a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a tweak. Well, let's take the GDP second look that we're going to have in basically a bipart economy. We all agree many elements of any given domestic nation economy now is actually pretty good. And then there's a whole trade component as well. Do you look at it as a, as a bipart analysis or do you aggregate into a moldy U.S. GDP? No, we, we really do look at it as, as pretty separate because we see constantly, you know, we have many, many charts and models where you see the sensitivity of both Fed decisions and market behavior to wobbles in momentum in manufacturing growth where the labor data are just not affected. So it's it's... During the 2008s and the 2001s, these are the rare yeah. times where the labor data broadly does get affected. So that is the big question right now. We are not assuming a material slowdown in, in the labor data. So, so that means if you think the labor market's going to be fine, then, then the Fed's then the, stable. Yeah, they then either they're completely yeah, okay. stable or they only hike once yeah. or twice in a little bit of a panic. This has been great. James Sweeney, thank you so much for the attention here, particularly after you publish on our fears of deflation. Uh, Mr. Sweeney with Credit Suisse. Joining us, I'm pleased to say, is Jerome Schneider. Good morning to Jerome. Good morning. Overseeing short-term rates here at PIMCO. What a morning for it. What is going on in this bond market? What do you tell clients this morning? Short-term rates, long-term rates. Basically, the market believes that defense wins championships at this point in time. And and ultimately, when you see what the movement in rates has done over the past few days, uh, the market's clearly romancing the fact that perhaps recessionary environment is is on the horizon. And and we clearly need to be thinking about uh, that from the rate move. For much of this year, for much of 2019, we've been pricing in the idea, at least many people have, the idea of a soft landing here in the United States. Are we moving past 
that idea to something maybe a little bit more sinister now? Well, it's definitely not at the forefront of most investors' mind at this point in time. In fact, you know, when you look at the frictions that are going on and emanating in the marketplace, uh, there's some disjointed, uh, disjointed views. And I think originally that what was thought as a low probability event or a lower probability event has moved for- toward the forefront. Clearly, trade and trade frictions have placed on that. And when people think about that, they quickly uh, exacerbate or extrapolate what is going to happen in the environment, not just for the next few days or weeks, but next few years. And we're seeing the rallying rates uh, happen for two reasons. One, risk-off scenario. Two, uh, when you think about the the, the continued evolution of where, uh, of where growth is going in the United States, again, a low for, lower for longer, uh, which we've posited here for a long time here at PIMCO, the reality is, is that a lower growth rate probably means that there's more susceptibility to recessionary trends. And, and when you have that, uh, ultimately, the race to a nearer or closer to zero yield um, is, going to be, is going to be in the cards. The two-year rates right now, 2%. It was only three years ago that the two-year Treasury note had a yield of 50 basis points. We went up. We can come down just as quickly, can't we? Well, I mean, that was the idea behind the Fed. Ultimately, what they want to do is create a bandwidth, create some type of distance to that zero bound. And ultimately, with that zero bound, you know, we really don't, uh, uh, the Fed wanted to simply use their ordinary mm-hmm. tools, their traditionary toolkit at that point in time to effectively cut rates should we have a recessionary environment. And, and don't expect anything, you know, much beyond that. We're not going to be hitting negative rates in, in the United States. But simply put, they're going to be focusing on on the sequencing of risk. And, and mind you, that the market is well ahead of itself. There's a pretty high barrier uh, to cut rates, uh, much higher barrier than, than the market might right. appreciate at this point in time. And so with that in mind, uh, you know, three plus rate hikes priced into where we are right now uh, does, you know, does seem a little full at this point in time. That being said, if, if recessionary environment does come to fruition, you know, you can quickly see uh, 10-year rates move well past that 2% threshold all the way down. Two-year rates, as you highlighted before, could, you know, could quickly uh, obviously recalibrate much lower considering a rate cut that might happen. If you're just joining us worldwide, John Farrow at Newport Beach, California with PIMCO. He begins a terrific day of conversations on Bloomberg surveillance and all the other Farrow properties, uh, beginning now with Jerome Schneider on short rates. Jerome, how do you measure the left tail? Speak to our global Wall Street audience. You walk into PIMCO early, early morning. You've got three logins on your Bloomberg. How do you measure left tail instability right now? Well, for me, the left tail instability comes from what I view as the great barometer of financial markets, which is the funding markets, the repo markets. And as we've discussed, Tom, many times, that has given us great indicators of the health of the overall liquidity and and, um, overall liquidity of the marketplace and leverage within the marketplace. You know, late, you know, third quarter of last year, we saw that begin to deteriorate as we hit into year end. Uh, Actually, right now, there's very little inclination that there's instability in those markets right now. So it seems seems fairly stable. stable at this point in time. What I would say is that we clearly are focused on a macroeconomic, changing macroeconomic conditions, Tom, which ultimately says rates are moving lower in the U.S. on a relative basis. U.S. yields look relatively high compared to the rest of the world, clearly from the Eurozone, even even other jurisdictions, you know, like uh, Canada, etc. So from that perspective, there's probably valid reason why rates should uh, coalesce at a lower degree than they were just even a few days ago. You think that spread needs to come in? Well, I, I can understand why it should come in at this point in time. Does it need to? Well, it all depends upon what your trajectory of growth is and how high a probability do you think that recessionary environment uh, is going to happen. Well, let's talk about your trajectory for growth and how it might differ with everyone else right now. You say this market may be a little bit ahead of itself. 
with the rate cuts it's pricing in, to, to what degree, Jerome? Well, so from that point of view, you know, we've, we've had a view that there's been moderating growth in, in the economy, in the U.S. economy for some time. You have ISMs that have continued to be above 50, but are deteriorated off, the, off their peaks over the past few past few uh, months. At the same time, um, the dovish response from the Fed has, has quickly elicited uh, an appetite for risk for risk taking that we've seen at the beginning of the part of the year. Um, when you look at that, you know, there's clearly implications that were much more positive just a few weeks ago. Now we have trade frictions. Those might be resolved tomorrow. They might be resolved over the course of the next year or two. And the longer they take, there's obviously going to be more demand, more drain on that growth expectation. So from our point of view, you know, this is just simply a point in time where you should be playing a little bit more defense. From a point in the cycle, we're very late in the cycle, as we've highlighted. We want to basically be picking our spots in terms of credit, picking our spots in terms of credit uh, portfolio differentiation, so having a diversified portfolio, and ultimately, uh, you know, focusing on that aspect of defense. Focusing on the front end of the yield curve, which we still find is pretty safe at this point in time, self-liquidating assets. And you can pretty much still uh, hunt around and find assets that are closer to about 3% compared to the interest on excess reserves, which is the Fed's benchmark of about 2.3%. Jerome Schneider. Beth McLean joining us now, Tom. Thank you very much. PIMCO is Portfolio Manager on Leverage Loans. Beth, great to have you with us on the program. It is one of those much-talked-about areas of fixed income, but perhaps one of the least understood. The Federal Reserve piling in over the last couple of years, saying that it's an area of worry, perhaps an area that could cause some kind of systemic risk. Let's start there, Beth. Your thoughts on that? Sure. Thank you. And thanks for having me this morning. Um, You know, I do think it's interesting. Leverage loans have become a real topic of conversation from the Fed to the Hill and and definitely in the media. But um, we think in in a way it's become a case of the people aren't seeing the forest for the trees, right? There's increased risk across all of credit. The investment grade market is now 50% triple Bs. There's weaker terms and conditions in the loan market, yes, but also in the high yield market, which is an unsecured market versus loans which are which are secured. Um, and, and then overall, the growth of the private credit market, which is completely unregulated. So I think there's plenty of risk to go around. And importantly, you have to, to boil it down to, you know, picking the individual credits, doing the bottom-up credit research so that you're picking the healthiest trees, if you will, in, in, in the forest. The irony of it all is that maybe the risks were building when the Federal Reserve was cutting, hiking interest rates rather, because there was this massive wall of demand for floating rate product. Just how much have the covenants, have some of the securities that investors would typically have, just how much have they been beaten up over the last couple of years? Yeah, I think that's been an area of focus, and rightly so. I think the the demand for income across you know high yield and leverage loans has driven to weaker terms. So generally, we see most of the market now over 80%, it was quote unquote covenant light, which means there's no maintenance covenants. But importantly, there are still incurrence tests. So companies can only incur debt if their leverage is, is peaked at a certain level. So there are some protections still in the documents. And then the other area of, of weakness, if you will, has been, you know, maybe looser baskets. Um, there, there's more room for adding incremental indebtedness. There's more room to make restricted payments or dividends. So those are the things that, again, it gets down really to us to how do you underwrite these loans? And are you in your models? You know, we have our, our global credit research team that, that you hear Mark Kiesel and others yep. talk about. Um, that team is very focused on doing that bottom 
bottom-up analysis and taking a look at the structure and saying, what if we fund that incremental debt and it pays a dividend so it's not really doing anything to help the company, if you will, but to help equity investors? Um, you know, how does that look? What does that impact our, you know, our view on their ability to deleverage over time, how the company can fare through a downturn? So we're always underwriting to what is that downside? What if they pull all of these triggers that they have in their credit agreements? And how, do, how, do, how will they be able to sustain cash flows and pay down debt during, during a weaker economic environment? Well, let's talk about the prospect of a much weaker economy. We have a global bond market pricing in rate cuts in the Treasury market, for instance. The prospect of recoveries, the default cycle, what it could look like now for this area of fixed income versus what it looked like 10 years ago. Has it changed in your mind? I think it has changed. Um, you know, you can't have this this fundamental shift in weaker terms, et cetera, and not have some expectation on how it's going to impact the behavior through the next economic cycle. Um, so I think a couple of things. One, we do think that recoveries in, in the last couple of cycles, you've had cumulative default rates of 25 to 30% with recoveries in loans of about 70%. If we go through the next um, cycle, and let's say you have the same cumulative default rate, but recoveries of, say, more like 60 to 65%, which is what the um, what the rating agencies are, are generally forecasting, obviously that's increased losses to, um, you know, to investors. But I think if you put it in, in, in a broader framework, the loan market is about a trillion dollars. Let's say we have that 30% cumulative default rate, and a more draconian scenario of 50% recoveries, that's $150 billion of losses. So that's not, not unmeaningful, but think about what the FANG stocks lose sometimes in an afternoon, right? If you yep. put it in perspective, yep. that's not that big. And, and then secondly, those losses are going to be borne primarily by CLO equity investors. CLOs own two-thirds of the loan market, and CLO equity is the first loss. So even in that scenario where you have 15% cumulative losses, most of that actually hits just the CLO equity and maybe the double Bs. Beth, really smart stuff and great to get your insight this morning on an area of fixed income, Tom, that I think is talked about a lot, but not understood very well. Beth McLean there of PIMCO. Really good perspective in a series of conversations with John Farrow at Newport Beach with PIMCO today. We now get a clinic on China from Hugo Rogers, Chief Investment Strategist at Dell Tech. He's smarter than I am. In February, he's in the Bahamas. Even now in May, he's in the Bahamas. So Hugo, you're smarter than I am. But your note on China is jaw-dropping. You clearly take the gloomy side. Why? Well, um, there's a very, uh, thank you for your introduction. Um, my ability to forecast the weather is um, is world famous, maybe. Um, very tough to do in the Bahamas, <laughs> yes, but continue. Exactly. Um, so the gloomy view on China really is that there are long-term structural issues in China. China is um, has been running a series of stimulus since the great financial crisis. They've all been debt-fueled fixed asset investment. And the marginal returns on those kinds of investments have been falling. You know, the, the credit impulse has led to a lower and lower mm-hmm. GDP response each time. So there is a problem with the old way of stimulating growth. That 
mechanism is is broken um and there's actually it's worse than that there's a a direct conflict the way you're funding that growth the way that china is funding that growth is you're effectively expropriating savings from your consumers and it's the consumer you need to pick up the economy you know it's less than half the economy and it's just not growing what do you make of the bank failure in inner mongolia four or five six days ago is that a (laughs) one-off idiosyncratic moment or not Uh, it's it's potentially a harbinger but you know let's not let's not read too much into a small bank fair fair but the you know i've seen the chinese banks i met them when they ipo however long ago and they all are state controlled so they have to lend where they're told to so so provide the balance right now of the political economics of beijing with the trade war and with the classic answer which is china will outpatience us do they have the underlying economic slash financial to outpatience president trump um yeah i hate to be consensus but the answer is they do have um they have less domestic political pressure they control the narrative they control the press they can they can play a long game but i i think it's clear that that is what they are betting on they are turning around and saying that we can play the long game trump is in a presidential election cycle right now um so if we wait out we get a a softer um um, administration we can maybe we can maybe win come on we they're not a currency manipulator there was an uproar (laughs) one year ago two years ago five years ago they were a currency manipulator i guess they still aren't fine We've got rare earths now. No, not the band folks from a million years ago. Rare earths, cobalt, selenium, and the rest and of it. Selenium, yeah. You go on. We got all that. Are those distractions, or should we actually study those as we try to study China? Um, look, they are. I think they're they're small weapons. You know, the the problem is that actually right now China is in such a, a weak position because it's trying to stimulate its economy. It's, it's been suffering. There's been a credit contraction for a period of time in China. And, and so it, Donald Trump has got them over a battle, barrel. So the, the best defense they have is a long-term, uh, we're playing a long-term patient game. But I, I find it quite interesting that they're talking, they are trying to back channel at the same time as trying to retaliate, at the same tri- time as trying to circumvent what? So which one of those three should we focus on as we try to figure out what to do with our portfolios? Uh, so this is where, I think this is where China is actually smart because it, it, it does how it's, it's playing all three games simultaneously. Whereas Trump is pushing home an advantage along a single line, which is if FX reserves, if, if, if the, um, the Chinese surplus falls, they have, they have problems. They have significant problems. Mm-hmm. That's, that's like a lightning rod that's going straight through. But China is playing three games simultaneously to try and try and um, circumvent that. Are they going to import Iranian oil, for example? Are there other ways of uh, having some kind of allegiance with with Europe if, right. if they get um, if Europe gets auto tariffs placed on them? So it, it's the best it's the best response they have is to play these 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 more subtle games. But they are in a weaker position and it can't be denied. Hugo Rogers, thank you so much. With Dell Tech today, our chief investment strategist uh, in from the Bahamas. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 